0: At the Table focuses on hospitality, but one of the things that I'm most grateful for is the opportunity to have conversations with people who are smart in their field, who are smart outside their field, who have a bit of a, a way of uh describing things and, and try to make things a little bit more palatable. Uh maybe that's too much of a stretch for an at the table metaphor, but I'm gonna go with it. The way that my next guest has done this is I think it's important work for a number of reasons. He has made certain conversations uh, more accessible to the average person. Professor Kevin Cruz, who's a professor of history at Princeton University. His most recent book with Julian Zelzer, his colleague, is Fault Lines. Kevin, thank you so much for spending some time with me at the table.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: We're in pandemic, quarantine or self-isolation. So I have to start with the most human of questions, I, I just saw, for example, my alma mater, Notre Dame, released their plan for a fall semester. How is it dealing with you and your family situation? How is it dealing with your students? And what are you expecting on the Princeton campus in the near future, if if, if you even know at this point?
1: Yeah, I, I don't really know at this point. It's it's uh, largely up in the air. In fact, after I get off this uh, a chat with you, we're having a, uh, a town hall with a history department where we're going to try to figure out what's going on. Right now, the university has basically said we need to plan to be uh, probably uh, online in the fall. I think that's increasingly likely. Yeah, uh, but there's been no firm commitment to it yet. Uh, I'm currently on leave this year. I was supposed to be him as leave uh, this leave year doing uh, research for my next uh, my next monograph, uh, and I got a lot done. And then everything came to a screeching halt in March. Uh, what that means, though. Is that, um, uh, uh, is that I, uh, I don't have uh, really any experience with what online teaching has been like uh, this, uh, this, uh, this year because uh, I haven't done it. Uh, it saved me a lot of headaches, but I'm going to have to kind of uh, learn from my, my colleagues as we go into the fall and get into teaching. My, uh, my, my quarantine experience, my lockdown experience has been at a really different level of education uh, in that uh, I've really been focused on homeschooling my two kids. they got a sixth grader and a, and a third grader. Uh, so uh, I am well-versed uh, in the ins and outs of, uh, of third-grade fractions. I happily talk you through some sixth-grade civics if you need help there. Uh, so, so it's going to be tough for me to get back up to speed to the, uh, the collegiate level. Um, I hope I don't bore my students with, you know, uh, talking about reciprocal fractions or something like that. Uh, but the odds are good; it's going to come tumbling out.
0: This is a weird question, but I have to ask: When you look at a sixth-grade history textbook, as a history professor at a you know at one of the nation's most prestigious colleges, do you ever look and say, "Well, that's just not right"? Like you just you do you look at the book and you're like, "I can't believe they're teaching this crap." Um, is there anything in there that uh, that that strikes you as either? flat out wrong or just badly probably badly written but even for the audience at, at a sixth grade level
1: well i mean i mean at one level there's there's a certain lag time right between the the scholarship that we do and what i would teach uh, you know certainly grad students but definitely even undergrads uh, we give them kind of the cutting edge research and 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 what we know now there's a lag time when you get down to those uh, those those elementary school textbooks and not for any kind of insidious reasons just cuz a lot of them have been in the works for a long time and maybe not have been updated in, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. And also they're, you know, they're pitched at a very different audience. Um, uh, and I think my, my biggest complaint here, and it's one I understand it's when we all grew up with is that at that level uh, you're teaching a kind of uh, celebratory civic style. U.S. history, yeah. Right. In which, you know, uh, a lot of the bad stuff is papered over uh, and it's really a story of of, of community and triumph. Uh, I like community. I, I like stories of triumph. But at uh, at the, the, the level at which I would teach it, um, we're more drawn to moments of conflict. That's when you know when the rubber hits the road and you really find out um, uh, you know what America's uh, principles are when they're put into into crisis, when they're when they're put into conflict uh and that's the really interesting stuff for us and so um that's my general complaint with that level of history is that it's a much more kind of shiny happy uh, us history uh where uh i like like any expert in any field know but that story that we're telling is uh is is not that true i i, I was struck a, I saw someone on on twitter a scientist i follow who who kind of pointed this out in their field you know uh, we all think, non-scientists think... Well, a hard.
0: The hard science field, the, 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 not the social yeah, science Yeah, hard
1: field. science. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it was a biologist who, who said, you know, you think these things are so simple because you were taught them in elementary school and you haven't thought about them since. They're right. really incredibly complex. I feel the same way about US history. You know, you know, it's, it's much more complex than, than you've got. But I understand at a certain level, it has to be taught. Uh, introductory history has to be very introductory, it has to be basic. Right. So I, yeah. I get that.
0: It's funny because this dovetails perfectly into the exact crux question that I wanted to ask you. It's it's the literally the first thing on my yellow pad, which is how do we prevent simple stories from winning in our politics? Because what you're talking about for the sixth grade audience, you're absolutely right. That's appropriate. And the president uh, every day goes out there and tries to tell a very simple story about who's bad, who's good and why you should do this. Uh, it's, it's effective political messaging, and it's difficult to counter. And I feel like there is an entire movement of more nuanced <laughs> explanations that end up crashing against the rocks. So how do, we, how do we prevent simple stories, the ones that are you know, the kind of bumper sticker politics, yeah. from being the one that wins the day?
1: Uh, that's a great question, and you know, there's a there's a real tendency in American politics, as you know well, to 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 play up those simple stories, right? There, there's a real allure, especially if they're positive. There's a real allure to those um, those kind of clear cut morality tales, in which things are easy and and life is good. Um, you know, some of the biggest. Electoral triumphs have been based on telling that kind of story. Look at what Reagan did in 1984 with the Morning in America ad. I mean, it's right. it's just as gauzy as it gets. Uh, and it, it's tough to counter that, uh, especially when times on the surface uh, seem to be good. Um, I think it's a lot easier in a moment of crisis because people uh, aren't going to buy that kind of gauzy, simplistic story. Uh, and I think there's a difference between a, a simplistic tale and a simple one. I think that we, you can tell um, uh, stories that aren't um, quite cut and dry and quite, quite black and, black and white uh, that might seem to be complex. You can tell them effectively with simple language. You can get that across. Uh, I think if you boil things down to the example of say, uh, an individual's life, uh, an individual's uh, a, a crisis, uh, a community in crisis, you can get across the complexity uh, that, that we strive for in all history, but you can do so in a clear and compelling way. Uh, and this again, politicians do as well. Look at again, look back at Reagan. Reagan's the one who introduced uh, that that now standard uh, habit of of pointing out individuals in the State of Union address. So to take these big right. policies and, and and put them on what was his name, Lenny Lenny Skotnik? I can't remember. Lenny Skotnik, something like that. Uh, one of his early state of union addresses pointed to this man in the in the in the in the stands in the, in the crowd, and and told his story and linked this policy he was trying to to get through to that. So we we boil things down to these representative Americans. Uh, that's something politicians have done effectively. Uh, we all can do that, right? And, and talk about okay, what does this big policy mean in the abstract? What is it going to mean to your life? What is it going to mean to your family? What is going to mean to people like you? Uh, what's it going to mean to people not like you? Uh, and, and try to get that across at a, at a basic human level. And you can tell those stories in simple, I think, powerful language. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be simplistic.
0: For the difference, though, and I guess you, you're right to point out that this is the moment in crisis and, those, and the kinds of stories are tougher to tell. You know, I look back at some of the books that you've written, and you're you're one after the other. You're kind of breaking down these myths, uh, religious right in America, or the the difference between, uh, the, you know, the story we tell about uh, the, the white nationalism in America, or or even the most recent conversation. You know, it, it's 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 a lot about this more complexity. And so what I what I wonder is, what we do as a regular person. To fight that mm-hmm. in an everyday battle, because we're faced with um, a diversity of media outlets and a diversity of, of views, to the point where we have these siloed realities, and politicians love this, yeah, as as you understand perfectly well, because it allows them to be irresponsible when it comes to anyone who isn't outside their silo. Trump is wonderful at this because if you're in the if you're in the inside. You you know, you, you get lots of laudatory praise, you get lots of lip service of him giving a damn about you. And if you're outside, well, then good luck, pal, you know, you'll you'll do this. But every politician for for, you know, one or another has this concept of you're in or out political parties are based on this. How do we move past this? And how do we get better? as a society, because that to me is, is one of the big struggles that se- it doesn't seem to have a trend line going anyway, but worse.
1: Right. Right. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's a really good question. And I think uh, to go back to where you started with it in my work, what I do is I tackle, I try to tackle big questions that, that may seem to be uh, in, intractable or may seem to be uh, uh, kind of set in stone. Uh, in some cases, literally. So the models they talk about in, in one nation under God certainly are, uh, and the way in which I break down those, you know, stories. that's,
0: that's a real unfortunate way to, to take a stab at Roy Moore, by the way,
1: <laughs> exactly right. Uh, he's but, been through enough. He's been through enough. I know. <laughs> enough. But, but one of the ways I do that is, is again, to dive into the specifics. So I make this argument in, uh, in white flight and it's not an original one for me. It's when a lot of urban historians had done, but that uh, the beauty of, of urban history in that book, I, I use Atlanta as a, as kind of a laboratory to explore these big issues. That are often left in the realm of the abstract. So segregation, discrimination, racism, okay, those are all big terms. What do they look like at the ground level, right? And so I use the I, I track these these people and events in Atlanta over about 20 years to try to give some specificity here. I mean down to the the street level in some neighborhoods, you know, to look at what happens when uh, neighborhoods change occupancy from from white to black. Right uh, to look at individual schools, what happens inside the classroom, right? And so I use that to really get in there to break down these big things. I've I've done that in all my uh, all my work in one level or another to try to use the stories of individuals or 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 individual communities uh, to really uh, bring out what's going on there. And that's an act of storytelling, really, you know. And in my case, it's one that is that is deeply grounded uh, in the archives. But ultimately, out of that material, I find I have to craft a story and have to talk to people. Yeah about these findings. And that's something anyone can do, right? And so I think a lot of times we're in these silos because we deal in these large abstractions, right? And so Democrats have ideas about Republicans and liberals have ideas about conservatives and vice versa. And we speak in this kind of shorthand of, of caricature, uh, if not character. And what we need to do is is really speaking real stories, use concrete, specific examples, right? And this is where you know we do this on Twitter all the time. Uh, I and other historians on Twitter, the way to puncture that uh, that abstraction, these broad claims that people make with no grounding, is to use the real facts, right? To bring in the evidence as best we can, uh, and to pierce the uh, the the kind of the broad-based claims that don't have any grounding in the facts and to use down to the human level specific stories to try to show what was actually happening, right? And that's something anyone can do, right? You know, you can speak if you're an individual citizen out there and you're trying to reach someone on the other side of this political divide, speak about your own experiences, right? Speak about the common ground you have with them, uh, whether it be a a job, a a, a church, a synagogue, you know, whatever kind of connection you might have, a town you share, you know, a sport you love, whatever you can find something I think where you can you can touch base with people in a way that shows them that they're not dealing with a character they're dealing with a real human being who has the same complexities uh, that they have, and maybe they have some commonalities there as well. I wonder
0: about the the power of an event like this quarantine where it in a society that's kind of starved for shared experiences, we're all kind of going through this same slog. i mean obviously what you and I are experiencing is kind of pleasant white collar self-isolation versus what someone else in a different part of the economy might be dealing with. And I think it's important to recognize that and to, Mm -hmm. you know, check that, but we're all dealing with it on some level. And yet, the power of those silos seems to have persisted for example we have people who are denying that the you know the death count is that high or we have the president talking about miracle cures literally every day you know there's still that power of storytelling being used for ill purposes even when we have a society wide no one is spared from this touch
1: right and it right.
0: Can't, so so if that can't break us of this terrible habit what can Because how does the how does the regular guy do better, tell a better story than everyone staying in their houses for months at a time?
1: Yeah, I mean, and and you've you've kind of put your finger on the real problem here is that uh, everyone does have uh, at some level a common experience. And I think you're absolutely right that there are uh, people with white collar positions who can stay at home are not experiencing this in the way in which a lot of people um, who are who are working. What we've now discovered are truly essential jobs uh, are experiencing this. Uh, But at some level, everyone is affected by this. To one degree or another, and so you would think we would have this this common ground. The problem is that then the the flip side of this isolation is that it, it I think reinforces one of the problems that Julian and I talk about in that book, Fault Lines, which is the way in which uh, the media, especially over the last decade or so, uh, not just cable news but certainly the internet, has increasingly fragmented uh, our our society, and and you have increasingly uh, you can just exist in your own little bubble. Where you turn on the channel that gives you the news the way you want to hear it, uh, and you tune in on social media uh, to the people who who uh, who echo that as well, uh, and it just becomes uh, you know a, an echo chamber all around. And so there's a real uh, problem there in that uh, for to reach people who who may see things differently than you, uh, it takes a lot of work to pierce that bubble. Um, and that's yeah. one of the things I actually like about Twitter is that is that I, I, it, it cross pollinates uh, pretty well. Uh, even if, you know, people have blocked off everyone, uh, there's certainly folks who've done that. Um, uh, you know, you can, you can reach most people uh, on that platform in a way in which you, you you can't on others.
0: If if Twitter beefs become the new honorary degrees, I think you're going to be doing very well in terms of, you know, how you look at the next in-person graduation. You're going to be a very decorated, uh, person. So I, I commend you for that because I really do feel like you should have, um, I don't know, something of of Dinesh D'Souza's like on your like a patch for <laughs> for having, you know, uh, th- that many conversations about him or his his ar- his arguments. Let me talk specifically about an attack on the profession of history, the way that you like to practice it. You know, I, I think about some of the explicit threats that somebody makes like Bill Barr the attorney general who says in has said in recent days that he intends to write the history of this White House. He's not concerned about his own legacy because he intends to be the one to write it. I think about that similarly to former White House counsel Don McGahn. When his tenure ended at the FEC, he lambasted everyone and said that people who had spent their time trying to get money out of politics had wasted their lives. Wasted their lives! Mm-hmm and these are the people who are trying to in ink write this chapter of history how how powerful can any of us be when this is the effort that's being made because we can talk a whole separate conversation about money and politics and other things but i think about the the personality types is there something about this particular type of partisanship that makes it more ruthless for example at at trying to, um, I don't know, write history against the grain of the facts.
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of adorable that, that Bill Barr thinks he's (laughs) going to write the history, but he's, he's not. And and
0: that's the only thing about Bill Barr that anyone has ever called adorable. He's just so cuddly. Uh,
1: (laughs) I mean, it's look, we've seen people try this before, you know, but they, they, they claim lots of losers in history thought that they were going to write the history. Lots of winners <laughs> in history thought they were going to write the history. None of them did. Um, uh, h- uh, historians write the history, but also the general public does too. And and unless illustrating... you sound a bit like Doctor, I don't know if you're a Doctor Who fan, but it's like he
0: uses museums to wait to keep score. I feel like this is you right <laughs> now. Uh, like we'll see about this. You know, it's kind of a again. If you're not a Doctor Who fan,
1: I apologize for the reference. No, that's that's great. Uh, but I I mean it's it's. Uh historians will write this but ju- the general public journalists will write this uh first i mean historians will, will write it as well uh this isn't that you you're in power and you get to tell the story uh that's not the way it works and we've seen in past instances people who thought that they could use the power there's a, i think it's something about the white house where you suddenly feel like you've got you're the in control of the universe uh that quickly fades when you're out you know uh carl rove or we well, think it was carl rove you know you know said it you know, uh, he mocked the reality-based community, right? And he said, right. you know, we are creating our own reality. You know, he th- that was even a bolder statement than Barr. Well, Carl Rove, we've already started to write those histories, doesn't look great in them, right? Right. And those books have been written. Uh, and, so, and so for whatever Carl Rove and his associates thought that they were doing in, you know, the middle of the Bush uh, presidency, uh, the story's been written now. And it's been written in a way in which they clearly uh, don't come off as uh, I mean, maybe they won elections, but not as the winners, not as the as the kind of the uh, the heroes and the protagonists of this story. Uh, and uh, certainly, things about them have been written that they would never want to have have written. And they can fulminate against that all they want, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that it's it's down there, right? Uh, and and I think also what, what Bar forgets is that there's not the history that's going to be written. There'll be multiple well, yeah. histories that'll be written, right? Yeah. And, and in the aggregate, we take our truth. Out of those histories, so he'll certainly have a a book. I'm sure he'll write a he'll have a big contract after this administration in which he argues about how right and brilliant they all were and how justified they were in what they did. Fine, I've got a bookcase full of books of people from the Nixon administration uh, who argue the same thing, right? I've got stuff from from Reagan and from Bush. They're there, uh, and you know, congratulations on your big advance, and, and people will buy it uh but they're not going to buy the argument in it right um that's just going to be one uh voice in a in a conversation that'll be i think drowned out uh by the facts
0: i think about your bookshelf being littered with its bullshit essentially right and then i think about twitter as being littered with even more of that and so your engagement on twitter has 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 been I find it inspiring. I find it useful, but I wonder about when, when you have to go through a publisher, when you, you've done this process, there's a sense of, uh, of truth that, you know, kind of gets to you. It's harder to publish a book. That's completely nonsense than it is unless you put a fiction label. on. Right. I guess what I'm saying is you've, you've dipped more than a toe in the water of social media. What, what kind of ideas fester there? And, and aren't some of those worse, I guess, I, let me put it another way. Your engagement is really powerful on social media, but are you worried that you're going to catch something by being this deep in that pool? Uh, yeah. Because, because, because there's, there's bad stuff in there. Yeah. As we all know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry for it for taking a while to get to that question, but I think you understand like- why it's, 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 it's a difficult one. Right. And I think about, again, your bookshelf a paragon of things, but there's definitely some real stinkers in there. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of stinkers on Twitter. <laughs> like there's a lot. Of
1: but the, 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 you know, the stinkers on my bookshelf are books that may be, you know, poorly written, thinly researched, poorly argued. They're not generally, you know, malicious. I'm not. I think
0: it's really rude of you to talk about your
1: colleague. Julian. <laughs> <that well. laughs> not my colleagues. No, no, they're all <laughs> um But you know, uh, uh, on Twitter, it's people who, who don't have that grounding in, in 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 scholarship or in fact or anything, uh, and are just kind of, uh, of throwing out arguments. Um, in a way, um, I like to think that my engagement on Twitter has only forced me to double down on the things that I I, I like to think make me an effective uh, writer and and teacher of history. Uh, it has. Um, I think without Twitter, I, maybe I would be happy, uh, to coast on, oh, I'm a professor of history at Princeton university. And that can carry a lot of weight in society. And I could, I don't do that on Twitter. Uh, I, don't, I don't Princeton's not in my bio. Um, I, I don't, I try not to play that card. Uh, instead when I engage with people, it's the way in which it is on Twitter, unfortunately, is that, you know, your expertise is matched by someone else's ignorance uh, and and you confront them on an equal playing ground. And, and so what you've got to do is you can't make an argument from authority. You've got to make an argument based on the facts. Uh, and you've got to make it uh, as um, as simply as effectively and as powerfully as possible. And there are millions of people out there uh, watching. I mean, it's, it's kind of like you know, it's it's. Uh, I'm gonna show my age here. It's kind of like, it's like a rap battle from Eight Mile, right? You know where, you know. <laughs> You I was, before,
0: when you said, I'm going to show my age, I was genuinely concerned because <laughs> like, you know, you could have done much worse. I could than have, that I could much, have. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um. But I'm sure, I'm sure that's probably an ancient reference now. Um, but, 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 you know, it's, 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 you, you've got that short span of attention and doesn't matter who you are when you've got, when you're making an argument, it has to stand on its own. Right. And so, and so and I try to make those arguments the way in which I, I do them in the classroom the way in which I do them in my writing, which is to, to, to dig into the details, to provide concrete examples, uh, and to let them speak for me. Uh, and that's one of the things I actually really love about Twitter, uh, there's a lot I don't love, but one of the things I love about Twitter is that, unlike any other form I, I use, um, I can show my work, right? I, I'm an archive rat and and when I write a book, I take the massive research I've done over years and years and I, I basically sum it up for people, right? You know, I'll quote from it. Right. Uh, but I, I, I'm i drawing my arguments out of that work. Uh, on Twitter, I can, you know, show a, a screenshot of something I found in the archives or, or a newspaper article or show a video of a speech or audio of something. I can play it in full where I, you know, might be able to get a, a line of something uh, into a book from a speech. I can play the whole 20 minutes, you know, and, and, and people can can soak that soak up, you know, if they want. Uh, and so... That's something I really like about it. Is it lets me lean into what I think are my strengths as an historian, uh, which are um, uh, uh, my ability to, to tell a narrative clearly and convincingly, but also my ability to, to kind of, uh, as we say in the Twitter world, to bring the receipts, right? To show the evidence. Yeah. Uh, and, and
0: I guess I'm just glad that none of us is being graded by it <laughs> because I think. I think we would all do very poorly in, in uh, you know, just, just cause I, I don't, I don't know your, you know, your, your teacher ratings, but I'm guessing that, you know, I'm just glad that I don't have to deal with
1: it. I, my, my teacher ratings are generally pretty, i pretty solid. The, the best teacher <laughs> review I ever got evaluation was this is the hardest class I ever took. And I loved it. That's what, that's, I, yeah, that, that's, that's you what know. you aim for as, as, as a teacher. And, and I, you know, I, the people I, I engage the, the, you know, the people I, I take down on, on Twitter Aren't at all like the people I find in my classrooms. The people in my classrooms, whatever their political alignment, whatever their their beliefs, they're trying their best, right? Uh, they're, right. they're engaged in an act of good faith. They're not trying to pull a con. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> I I don't approach. <laughs> I don't I know. Don't I'm I sure. I, very... I, yeah, I don't approach my students the the way in which I approach uh, kind of trolls on on Twitter. Not not at all.
0: Let me ask you. You mentioned uh, Atlanta earlier and some of the 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 ways in which. Um, demographics have changed, and some of the studies that you've that you've worked on over the years. I also know that you're involved in a uh, voter suppression initiative. I, I say voter sp- uh, anti voter yes. suppression initiative would be the better way to that's describe the it. Clear which side I'm uh, on there. Yeah, I think. That's, well, um, so and uh, one that's uh, got uh, Stacey Abrams alongside other people. What's what's the work that you're doing there, and how does that play a role in the politics that we find ourselves in right now? Because Georgia is doing some stuff uh george is very active in um it is a hotbed of many things right now including uh, apparently a lot of virus
1: right right well so this 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 thing i'm doing with the uh, actually did it with um with Stacey abrams was uh, a conversation that she had with several historians uh about this time last year at the annual conference of the organization of american historians so we met in in Philadelphia. And had a chat and it was, it was a great group of people, Uh, uh, Heather Cox Richardson, uh, Heather Ann Thompson, um, uh, Carol Anderson, all uh, top scholars who've written on different aspects of voting rights and me. Uh, And and then um, uh, it was a Jim Downs, uh, another historian, uh, hosted the conversation. And basically we had this kind of free flowing, you know, a couple hours of conversation and uh, they, some grad student heroically transcribed the whole thing and it's going to come out as a book. Uh, I think July one from university of Georgia press. So uh, that's been a real uh, treat to be involved in to kind of bring our collective historical expertise on this issue, uh, in conversation with, uh, with, with the top politician who had just come off, uh, a run for governor there in which there was all kinds of, of, of voter suppression, uh, orchestrated by the, by the eventual winner, Kemp. Um, uh, and, uh, and to talk about that in, in some concrete terms, what's going on in, in Georgia now? Uh, yeah, I find incredibly fascinating. You know, when I uh, when I lived there in the late '90s uh, and was writing about an even earlier period, uh, I was kind of dealing with a past and present really marked uh, by by conservatism across the state. Uh, you know, I was there. You know, when you know Newt Gingrich was still representing. I was just Cobb thinking. Yeah, this yeah. was yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, and, and uh, 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 Bob Barr. Uh, was, was there too. Uh, it was really a, a, a very conservative uh, state even then, even in Atlanta. Uh, and to see what's going on now where, uh, you know, the, the, the polls uh, um, uh, today uh, show narrow edges for, for Biden and both Democrats in the Senate races, which is uh, remarkable uh, to, to, to see that. And I think if, if Georgia really is becoming, you know, a, a purple state, uh, uh, that's really a remarkable transformation uh, that might echo across the, across the South. Um, you know, kind of like what we saw with, with Virginia and we forget Virginia used to be, uh, a, a kind of reliably red, red state. I and mean, then it, it, right. it tipped rather quickly. Uh, we might be seeing the same thing going on with Georgia. And if so, that's a, that's a huge game changer.
0: I have two, two more questions for you. One, which is a serious one. And one, which is again, kind of about our life right now in this, Weird moment. The idea of uh, I, I think I've seen it a thousand times on Twitter. Uh, uh, we all miss living in precedented times. Uh, but let me. What is what is the next big political problem that you see coming down the pike? We have seen, for example, the the stuff that you've described about. Um, you know, one of my former colleagues has a book about the end of white politics coming out soon. Uh, I think about some of the ways in which. Um, you know, race, religion, et cetera, have all been, uh, you know, even today, seeing some stories about the power of abortion in American politics. And then I think about what's what's next. And so, as much as the prescriptive power of the work that you do is possible, uh, what do you see as the next uh, the next problem that we are we should be on the lookout for in our American
1: politics? My standard line when I'm asked to make a prediction is is to to note that my professional training is in hindsight. Um, but, but but I'll take a stab at this. I, I think I mean all those things you mentioned are going to continue to to, to bubble uh, up and and churn in interesting ways. Well, crap. No, but 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 <laughs> yeah. one of the things that I think hasn't been on our radar as much, and I think is is really coming to focus just in these last uh, couple months, uh, is labor rights. Right. I, I think yeah. we've seen, uh, yeah. and I, I I keep we're not there yet. But this wave of, of mass unemployment is going to have the same kind of impact on the way in which Americans understand the value of work uh, in every sense, economic, social, political, uh, but also the way in which they try to protect uh, that work. Uh, and so I, I think we're going to we could really see that kind of that wave of, uh, of anti-labor politics, which you know really started in this country in the late 40s with Taft-Hartley. Uh, and kind of crested in the 80s and 90s, I think we're going to see that roll back pretty quickly as workers realize that they actually have some power. They have some, uh, again, they play a truly essential role uh, in the society. Uh, And if they band together, we could see the revival of of a new era of labor, just like we did after the first, uh, you know, uh, during the first Great Depression, when you got the the real rise of labor unions in the 1930s. You could see a return to that, I think. And if you've got, you know, uh, 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 labor-friendly politicians in uh, the White House and Congress, uh, some real lasting changes could could take place in, I think, surprisingly short order. So I don't think a lot of people are looking to that quite yet, but but I think that's 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 really about to happen.
0: The the fun question, or I suppose the the really dire question, depending on your point of view, that I'd like to end with is uh, I think about how our lives have all changed in the last few months and how much we have just kind of gone along with it. And I want to ask you to think really hard if you could about the pantry that you have currently. And if the situation gets particularly bad and you are unable to get more food or to go out and, and do that, what will be the last thing, the thing that you are looking forward to the least? What is the last thing <laughs> that you will eat in your pantry? I I know exactly what it is. It has actually changed recently for me. Um, but I, I'm I'm very curious, again, kind of my background, not just as a White House reporter, but also as a kid who grew up in his family's restaurant, I'm very curious as to what people are least looking forward to eating and what is yours?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, there is a probably frostbitten frozen meal at the bottom of our deep freezer. Um, in fact, I, I think the label is is so covered in like frostbite, you can't even read it anymore. That would probably be it. I, I It'd be a surprise. But it's, it's, it's easily been in there for two, three years. Yeah. What genre
0: of food do you believe it to be?
1: I, I'm going to guess some sort of meat. Maybe I, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The way,
0: the way you said meat, I, there's a lot of comedy in, in tone and I just <laughs> meat like even, even the word was in question for me. That was wonderful. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I needed that lab. Um, well i hope and 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 the way I've responded in each of these moments is I hope you never have to eat that meat
1: here's hoping. hope that yeah. uh, we, <laughs> I hope we, that we things... are well stocked i've uh I, that's good. I've gone all in on the uh on on the prep here so we we've got we have plenty of foods it'll I hope it doesn't come to that either. If it does, although uh, I'll, I'll, I'll report in and let you know what it actually was.
0: Thank you. I really expect that uh, uh, you will get a stringer's fee and I will really appreciate that <laughs> reporting. Uh, Kevin Cruz is a professor of history at both uh, the University of Twitter, but also Princeton. Uh, he's uh, most recently fault lines, but this summer he's got that that piece coming out on voter suppression that I know that I and a lot of other people are going to be looking into. I would point you to that and his Twitter account as well. I will make sure to link that in the episode description to make sure that you are able to, if you are not already following him, to make sure that you are able to correct that very quickly. Professor, thank you so much for spending some time with me at the table. My pleasure.